Well, we are in the third part of our Advent series entitled Prepare the Way. And I honestly believe that whenever God shows up in our lives, it's likely that before he does, he's already done some work to kind of prepare the way. And when he does that work that is necessary to prime us to receive the gospel... It's not always fun because it's God's way of saying conditions have to be ordered in such a way that you'll be able to experience joy with me. And oftentimes we're not ready to experience that joy because our head is just isn't in the right place. Now, I was thinking this week as far as uh, what, um, what I was going to speak about regarding how it is that we're going to move into the text that we have today because it's not necessarily what I call a fun text. Matter of fact, it brought up some childhood traumas because it reminded me of some key moments when my father had to correct me on a few things. And I was triggered just a second ago uh, when, when you said, um, you know, kids sparking joy because I thought about being a kid and sparking things and that led to I think one of the first times that my father had to had to spank me and it it was back in a day when you know they they would just use a belt and it was like make a point and I know that would probably get him a life sentence in prison but that's what they did back in the day and whenever you're on the receiving end of it you're thinking you should get a life sentence in prison for doing that to me but he never had to, he, he did it twice and the first time was there was a construction site right next door to where we lived and we'd go over there and play around a lot of times and we went through this phase myself and a couple of neighborhood kids right around third grade where parents were smokers and we were fascinated by fire. I don't know if you went through that pyromaniac stage at any point in your life, but it really took hold of me for just a little bit. And we were, we were sneaking away their, ma- their matches. We even had a code name for matches, markers. They sound like matches, but they don't know what we're talking about. And we'd, we'd meet up and we'd say, did you get any markers from your parents? And we all knew what that meant. And our parents had no idea, which made it even a darker sin. Well, we got their markers and, you know, they would buy packs of them and they wouldn't miss them. This is before Bic lighters even, so that shows you how old I am. And as we were taking the markers and we were lighting them, we were doing all kinds of fun things with them. When we discovered gasoline, it really took it to a whole new level. And um, thankfully, no houses were burned down. A shed was almost burned down. A bunch of model cars, well, never mind. We're just not going to go into those details because there's kids here. And what I'd like to say is that it got to a point where we were playing around this construction company site and we were playing uh, on, on a concrete pad that had a bunch of oil on it from their, you know, from their semi-trucks and stuff. Well, guess what? We didn't realize that was what you call flammable, a word I came to discover. And when the fire department showed up and all the trucks were there and we were there, and my dad walks out, and he's like, what happened? And, of course, you know, we're pointing the finger at each other like, I, I didn't do it. He did it. We all did it. We were burning things that we shouldn't be burning. And went back to the house. And after he had told the fire department, because he knew, actually, that 
on the fire department and the police department. Matter of fact, at that point in time, my sister was actually married to the chief of police, which is probably a good thing under these conditions. So they just said, you take care of it, Mr. Moore, and he did. And I'm like, I don't like my dad right now. But I understand why he did what he did, because I kind of deserve that. And there were a couple other occasions when he had to correct me. And just as a, as a FYI or sidebar, after that time that the fire truck showed up, never played with markers again. I was a reformed pyrotechnic. I'm not even interested anymore. Matter of fact, I have fireworks in my garage that are two years old that I could care less. I mean, I had just, I had repented. I had turned from that way to that way, and it wasn't a concern of mine or an attraction anymore. And I think the trauma of getting hammered with the belt probably worked it out. There was a couple other times when my dad had to be pretty punitive and another one involved a time when I was being willful and he just gave me a smack with the belt and that was it. Fast forward to my freshman year and my mother wanted to go to her mom's for Thanksgiving and being an idiot freshman like I was, I told her, I have a social life, I don't want to go. She went into the other room and she started crying. And I'm like, oh, she's never done that before. That hurts, making her cry. Mom, do you want to hit me with the belt? That would be great, just hit me, I don't care. But seeing her cry, I knew that it was a deeper, well, it, hit, it struck me as a deeper thing. And I truly was remorseful. And I don't know that I've ever made my mom cry again, except for just tears of joy of being my, my wonderful self. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Well, I don't know about you, but if you've ever had somebody correct you on something, it's never been easy, has it? And having been on, the, on, the, on also the giving end of that, it's never been fun to have to do it, even with our kids. Yet it's one of those important things that God has to move us into. And sometimes it's a necessary thing that he has to allow us to go through in order for us to receive that which he has for us. But in a state of pyrotechnic uh, fixation or a state of willful rebellion or everything in between or just selfishness. God is basically saying the same thing that my parents did. They're not in a position to receive the good things yet. And it's not that God doesn't want to give them, but if he gives us the good things at the wrong time, we probably won't appreciate it. And there was a good thing that God had for his people that he wanted to give to them like he wants to give to each of us. And the conditions that they were under were a lot worse probably than any that we've ever gone through. As I'm not trying to judge your situation, but I do know that there are a lot of things that God's people had gone through for 400 years without the presence of God in their midst that were deeply painful, if not very traumatic from a a collective level and they were wanting at that point God to show up and the scripture tells us that God had to prepare the way he had to make sure that when the the one who was to come that was going to make all the difference in the world and bring 
the complete and fulfillment of the answer to all their prayers and even more, there was a necessary role that had to be performed by a person who would, well, they would have to, they would have to speak pretty straight about all the things that needed to come correct before people were in a condition to receive the good things from God. And so there's John the Baptist, a guy that I can only imagine. The scripture describes him as living in the desert, probably had a very long, you know, Duck Dynasty type beard, probably didn't take a bath much at all, if at all. Scripture says he ate locusts and honey. I don't know what that means, eating locusts and honey. Some people say, yeah, locusts was a type of food. I don't believe that. I think he just ate bugs, and I think he ate honey to wash them down. And that was it. He probably didn't cough much, but I'm sure I would gag a lot on that. You look at his role, and it's to spend time out in the desert in this feral mode so that he could declare to God's people the very things that they needed to hear. Well, I, I, I've never been able to wrap my mind around what he looked like until last summer. We went to Lake Erie, and we noticed that because Lake Erie had flooded, that there was a lot of driftwood that had, that had accumulated up on the beach up at Presque Isle. And one thing that fascinated me was how somebody took all this driftwood and they combined it so that it would actually create sort of like a, a little room. And... I told Mandy, I said, we should go check that out. And I thought, well, there's a path going through it on up to the place where the cars are parked. And I said, let's just go back that way. So we go in there and it kind of dead ends. And I'm like, oh, we're kind of trapped. And then over off to my right, there's this guy. And he's not wearing many clothes at all. And he's got a lot of tattoos and he's got long hair and he's got a scraggly beard. And, and he said something that I'll never forget. He said something that, well, first of all, it was shocking. It was, hello there. And I'll, I, I'm like, and there he is right there. And then, then I'm taking it in and I'm like, where did this guy come from? I mean, have you ever had something happen to you that you're like, this did not fit my expectations at all. And it, it, it totally threw me off. But as I just kind of sized him up, I thought, I hope this weirdo doesn't try to do something to myself or my wife or anything like that because I just, he looks like he's dangerous. And then I noticed the Bible. And then he started preaching. And he was going off on this and that other social ill and that thing that he was obsessed about that needed to come correct in the world. And for about 10 minutes, he just went on a rant. And then I thought, God just showed me John the Baptist. And before he took up an offering, I got out of there. <laughs> so, filed that way away in my head, and I, I, I considered that if I ever preach on John the Baptist, that guy is going to be the guy inside my head that I'm going to be thinking about. Well, I'm sure there are differences between the two, but one of the things that corresponds is the fact that he didn't quite fit in, and I think that's why he was there. Matter of fact, I think looking at this number of belongings he had, he lived there for a while. If you, if you want to pull up a map that I have uh, on, the, on, the, on, that, on that slide deck, I want to show up for a second. If you look at this map, it's the Holy Land, of course, and you have 
sort of a point of orientation at the top, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his three years ministering to people. And then that long line going down is the Jordan River, which so many biblical things happen that it's significant on, on so many storied levels. And then at the bottom you have the Dead Sea where the water comes in, but it doesn't go out. And what happened in Jesus' day before he began his ministry was a man in the form that I just described was called to go out into that region that's called Perea. It's right above Arabia Petria. You got that? Okay. Basically, anybody ever been to Las Vegas? Nobody, everybody's like, no, I'm not telling anybody I've been to Las Vegas. I know, that was kind of not nice, was it? Okay, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, there's nothing there except casinos and desert, and more and more desert and more desert. That region is the desert region. It's the region that the Israelites, whenever they were getting ready to go into the promised land during the time of Joshua, they were kind of camped out until God said, it's time to go. And Joshua and Caleb led everybody to that river that's going down, the, the, um, the Jordan River, and they crossed over. And when they did, he said to Joshua and Caleb, there are stones that you need to remove from that that body of water and you need to set them up so that when the time comes for your children to ask the question, why are these 12 stones here? You can remind them of something that is going to be a monument in time for all of my children to remember for generations. And that is, this is the day that the exodus was complete and we went into the promised land. So every Jewish person, even to the time of Jesus had in their minds this vivid image of God creating them as a people and placing them in what was known as the Holy Land at that point. And as they carried that image around, the Exodus meant something. It meant that God had delivered them from their oppressors. That the heavy handedness of Pharaoh and the unseen powers and everything occultic and all of that that was pressing in on God's people God went in and called those people and he said to them, these are my people. After 10 plagues, they got the point and off they went. And that, that solidified in the mind of God's people at that time, way back before John the Baptist came, that they truly were a chosen people for a chosen purpose so that in the course of time, God could say, that is the nation that I've established so they can be a light to the world. And by design, that's what he wanted them to be. Well, you fast forward about five, uh, to about five, six hundred years before Jesus, and those people have lost their way. Every choice they were making, every category in their head about how they looked at things was completely redefined by the pagan culture around them. They no longer thought about the things of God nor cared about the things of God. And as a result of that, they got disconnected from who they were, not remembering the stories anymore and not facing the life that they were called to live with all of the paganism, the child sacrifices, the, the, the power plays, the, the, just the evil that was going on. They got away from the thing that would have kept them sane and connected to God. And that is who they were. It so upset God that he concluded that 
we're going to have to rekindle within their own thinking a new appreciation for what I did to them a long time ago. And when the time is right, we're going to reset it all over again in sort of a unique but even more powerful way. And here's where John the Baptist comes in. On the other side of that, uh, of where Jerusalem is and everything there, in the, in, in the region that's called Perea on that map, John said, we're going to go to the staging area for God's people before they went into the promised land. And we're going to re-dramatize that. But the important thing is, this time we want to get it right. And so he, as he went out to the desert in his very peculiar manner and form, he began to call people out. He began to look at every person that was coming out to him for reasons which we'll go into in a minute. And he knew the things that they were doing that were disrupting God's purposes and he wasn't having any of it. So here's what happens. At the end of the book of Luke, or Luke chapter 1, verse 80, we read these words. In it, uh, if we can pull that up, the first slide of, of Scripture. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So he just hung out there in the desert and played out there, chased lizards, ate honey and bugs, just getting ready, getting ready, getting conditioned, because when the time came, it was going to get ugly. When the time came, he was going to offend a lot of people and upset a lot of people. And when the time came, he knew it may even cost him his life. Because what he was setting out to do was what we read next. Go ahead and, and show the next slide. He said this. Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea. And there's a test by the way at the end. You're going to have to tell me how to pronounce those words and then we'll, we'll let you out of here, but not until then. Trachonitis and Lysanias and tetrarch of Abilene. Okay, you got all that? Show the map again if you don't mind. In other words, in the northern part of the map, there's Herod and his brother Philip. And they are in the line of kings, supposedly from King David. And they were assuming the divine right that they had to rule over God's people. And they were kind of supported by the Roman government. The only downside to their effort was that they were completely incompetent. They couldn't manage the situation that they were given to manage by the Romans very well. And it was primarily because they were off buying their version of Ferraris. They were taking va exotic vacations. And they were spending money on very elaborate and uh, indulgent things that they really didn't care. They just knew this was an opportunity to gravy train off of the whatever wealth is being generated by God's people. And that's all they cared about. But they wanted to posture like they were kings. And they were entitled to the right of 
King David and the kings that followed subsequently to rule over the people. And they established themselves that way. But when the Bible uses the word tetrarch, it just means kind of a second class, sort of, you're appointed to this role because, not because you know what you're doing, but because there are politics that make it necessary. And that was about it. Matter of fact, just going back to the map for a second. This is the world that Jesus came into. I'm just going to say it's politically chaos. Because down below Samaria was another region that was defined by, well, should have been defined by that kingdom that we just talked about. However, the Romans said, those guys are such screw-ups up in the north. We'll just let them handle those country bumpkins up there. And we'll manage things down here. So the Roman government said, we need to put somebody in charge who's from us. And that person was Pilate. And Pilate managed that whole region there. And it wasn't even a necessity until a few years back. People were looking at this region of land and they were saying, they're pretty good about managing themselves. They're doing okay. There's no drama. There's nobody really acting up. But all of that changed. Can you imagine living in a time when people politically were really after one another and they were setting to disempower and disembowel one another and they were, they were doing everything that they could to jockey for position. They were stabbing each other. Can you imagine living in a political environment like that? Where if you were a person that gained your income from trade, you're wondering what sort of policies are they going to enact next month that's going to change my whole business plan? Trying to operate in that kind of uncertainty. Can you imagine somebody trying to function under those conditions? Well, perhaps if you can, I know it's a stretch, you'll sort of know what these guys are up against. The only difference was we didn't have soldiers in our time standing at every corner, looking at what we do, recording it, and then passing that information on to higher powers. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're listening on your phone. I'm not even being paranoid. I mean, it's just a public thing. We listen to what people say on their phone. Sometimes their phone's on, sometimes it's not. But we're doing it for data purposes. Notwithstanding the fact that we're also listening through Alexa, we're listening through your TV. I mean, does that sound paranoid? If I said this 10 years ago, people would say, he's done. And, but it, it is what it is. Data is the thing that people want. They want to know what you're doing all the time. The problem with that, as it was for them, when you know what everybody's doing, and if you don't like what they're doing, stop them. And I'm sure our benevolent digital overlords would never do that. But let's say they would. Maybe conditions are more comparable than we think. I kind of want to believe though that it's a little more hopeful because of a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb reminds us that we're living in a different moment. And I console myself with that. Matter of fact, I remember a missionary who said, uh, his name was Leslie Newbegin, and he was asked after being on the mission field for years, Leslie, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? He just said, neither. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's all he said. 
But the reason why he said it is because, believe it or not, it makes a whole lot of difference living this side of that. And we're going to get into that next week, but I just want to prime you to receive that when, that when that time comes. In the meantime, those guys had none of that. They didn't even know what their, their, their new king was going to look like. They were just hoping it wouldn't be like the one up north. And as they were out there in the desert, we have to ask, why was it that people were going out there? Well, let's just read some more from the text, if we can, in Luke chapter 3. We're going to pick up here. As it is written in the book of the prophet, the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the, shall see the salvation of God. Why does the scripture say that? Not once, but a number of times to God's people when they're just hoping that things will get better. And when they're reading that, here's how I look at it. When my dad had to discipline me, he was doing that because, quite honestly, if I just kept going on like that, I would be doing a prison ministry right now. Okay? And probably have some... Some neighbors harboring bitterness for a long time. If I'd kept going like, like I was, I would probably be so willful that I wouldn't listen to the wisdom of people around me and benefit from it. If I had kept going the way I'd been going, I'd probably said to my parents in arrogance, you don't know what you're talking about, and I can do whatever I want. If I kept going the way I wanted to go, I could have said to my mom, you shouldn't be so sensitive and all of these things that are impulses that we have under conditions like those where we're trying to justify and make excuses are just ways of saying our hearts aren't right. They are not where they need to be. And so my mom would say occasionally, have you ever heard your mom say this? You need to straighten up and fly right. Anybody remember that? I'm like, what does that mean? I've never flown. But she would say that. Or, if you don't act up, I'm going to jerk a knot in your tail. I don't know what that means. I don't have a tail. But I wasn't being a smart aleck because I knew the voice that said that had a certain tone that communicated more than the words. When my mom started crying whenever I was being willful and disobedient and obnoxious twit teenager freshman... I knew that I couldn't carry on like that forever. When the mountains need to be brought down, maybe that's God's way of saying pride needs to be called into check and humility needs to prevail. When you are so broken and you are down in the dark valley and you need to be lifted up, then you need to hear a word that says God loves you and God's with you and God's going to help you. When you're starting to go off track, you need somebody to say, I think you need to turn the wheel the other way for a while and get back in, the, back in the game. And all he was saying to the people there was, there are things that are making it hard for God to do what he needs to do and his people need to get right. Well, they're out in the desert and he's baptizing people and as 
people who would want to join the people of God who were Gentiles would come in. They would get baptized. But the funny thing was, these people knew, as jacked up and messed up as our government is, as painful as it is to endure their ever-changing policies, as it is so difficult to pay taxes to people that just spend them on lavish vacations and estates, as hard as it is to show any respect for the Roman government who's oppressing us, as hopeless as it is to get up in the morning and wonder if God even cares. John the Baptist was calling people out. And he called the Gentiles in the crowd to do something to get baptized. But what's so weird about this passage is he's calling the Jewish people to get baptized, which they never did because they didn't need to. They were already in family. But as he's calling them out, and he's hitting the mark, the ones who are getting upset are the ones who are offended. And in the text, it basically describes the religious leaders. The ones who knew the scripture, who had all together, who should have, from the standpoint of having that knowledge, basically promoted the character of God in their own lives. But on every front, when people looked at those people of God, you know what they said? Hypocrite. We don't even want to go to the temple. And I think sometimes when God looks at us, especially if we've been tracking in the church for a long time, and we're not paying attention to the things that we're doing and how they take away from our, our testimony, our witness. When they look at us and they say, they're no different than anybody else. Their God must not be either. God knew that if he was going to bring his Messiah into the world, it was critical that the people that received him were beginning to align with him. And that their lives would be a signpost or a representation or dare I say an image of the Savior who had come to deliver them once again. So a lot of Jewish people said, I'm not a religious leader. I'm not even much of a religious person anymore. But I do want this. I want to reset it again. I want to be baptized. I want to be a part of the people of God as God originally attended, intended way back when. And John the Baptist's only job was to help us come clean. To call us out. To name what's going wrong. And to say, you got to straighten that out. He wasn't saying, don't wait to come to, don't wait till you're perfectly moral to come to church. He's just saying, get in that place where you're starting to think more about the things of God on a more serious level. That's, that's different than saying, if I get everything right in my life, I'll come to church. What John is trying to do is the same thing God is trying to do in your life and mine whenever he pulls us in. He's just going to work. And he's showing us with blatant obviousness how derailed we are. And I, I can remember whenever I was, a, before I was a Christian, I remember drinking 
and doing it excessively with friends as a teenager like a lot of teenagers do. And I remember trying it once, this side of baptism, and thinking, that doesn't even fit anymore. And I remember trying a few things, that side of baptism, that I used to do that I'm like, that doesn't even have a place anymore. And it's like God was saying, I'm getting you in a place where you can receive those good things and then you can build on them. And so let's just start with the obvious. Maybe the obvious is something like that. Maybe the obvious is just your unwillingness to see the tears of God crying when you're so obstinate and rebellious. Maybe the obvious is everything is broken down in your life right now relationally and you know that only God and God alone can fix it. Maybe the obvious is you fill in the blank. And God has a way of calling it up, naming it, and calling us out. So I'm going to end this with two options. One of them is the Pharisee option. When the Pharisees heard John, they did this. We have a theological category in our mind for you as a spiritual person. You know what it is, John? Lunatic. Crazy. Go back to where you came from. And it was just their way of taking everything that he called out and pushing it back down and then in their own mind rationalizing that life is good is completely and totally dishonest. And you can't live a lie in a real world. And then there are other people who knew they were living lies and sometimes they were just to get by. And sometimes they were deferring to things that they knew weren't quite right but they had no other sense of where to go or what to do and at least it was working for him, kind of. And John was saying, it's time to put that away. And it's time to let the Messiah start working for you as he's called to do. And I, I truly believe we can do one of two things when we hear something from God that is painful. We could be like I was when I got called out for starting a fire not me, it's him. He's the one. But my dad, who was a just judge, said, no, it's not, it's you. Come over here. And that's just reality. And God will call us out, and he will call us out, but the only reason he does it is because he loves us so much that he doesn't want us stuck in those things. And get to a place like the Pharisees where you can't even see it anymore. You wouldn't know a Messiah if he hit you upside the head. And I don't want to see any of you guys be in that space. And I don't want to end up in that space. But what God is doing in this moment is he's just telling us as we re-dramatize the experience together that maybe it's time to call some other things up. I don't know. I don't know how God is working in your life. All I know is he will keep working. He will keep calling stuff up. He will keep naming it. And he will keep calling us out until we are totally and completely right with him. We're already saved. That's not the issue. The concern is, are we prepared? 
Now this side of the cross in the empty tomb, it's a different kind of preparation. It's a way of saying, when that time comes, Lord, I'm pretty primed for it. And Karen, that's what I've, I loved about your dad and Rob, your parents. They're ready. They are in the Word. They said their prayers. They knew their Lord. And it wasn't hard to go. And wouldn't it be great when the Lord shows up? We're like, wait a minute, Lord. My house is a mess right now. Can you give me five minutes? You ever have somebody show up, other than maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses, and knock on the door and you're like, oh, if they come in, they're going to see somebody left their underwear on the floor. Hypothetically. But you get the point. And God is at work in your life and mine to help us prepare the way along the way as dramatic as it was for them. Thankfully we have a bloodstained cross that underscores the grace that says I'm, I'm going to bring you forward into a way of life. And that cross is a way of obscuring those things that are getting in the way. And I'm going to bring you into my family and we're going to start to do things together and become the people that this world needs because it's pretty broken and God needs a lot of people to be his image bearers to the world around us. And there's nothing more heartbreaking for God or for any of us than to know that one of us has made such a nasty stink to people around us that we push people away. So we just have to be very careful and continue to prepare the place for his presence in our lives week in and week out. I'm going to close with prayer and that's where we're going to end this part of the Advent series. Father, we are so grateful that as you work in our lives, you're changing us. You're transforming us into the people that you call us to be. And Father, thank you for those watery graves that you create called baptism, which is a, a way of being made new in you to reset the past in a way that says you are looking ahead to the future and you're coming alongside us in a new way of life. I pray for everyone here that if they haven't, if there's anyone in the room, Lord, that hasn't gone through that experience of baptism, that you help us to show the way of what it means and how it can make a difference. And Lord, we know it doesn't save us, but it is a way of identifying with the one who does. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you would work in every heart here, that if this room is fully redeemed, great. But if not, Father, I pray that as you work in our lives, as you call things out, as you make us discontent with a way apart from you, that you give us the grace and the mercy to come alongside and show the way. I pray that you bless this series as we think about the things that are, well, that are hard to ponder, but yet are ways of making us stronger in you. I pray your blessing on everyone here in that process, but for those who are leaving here with some conviction, I pray that you would just help to exchange whatever that is for something even better. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.